I read uh, back in January where millions of Hindu pilgrims scrambled over to the Ganges River to take part in an event that happens over one, only once every 144 years when the planets line up just right. And that is over 10 million people dip themselves into the Ganges River believing <clears throat> that at this specific time on a Tuesday at 320 that their sins would be washed away and that there would be some assistance given them to escape the cycle of reincarnation in which they believe. You know, as an American Christian, I look at this and I think as most of us American Christians struggle to relate to it. Um, it's, of course, another culture. It's a little different. Um, dress is definitely different. Uh, the feel of religion is different over in India, much more expressive publicly, which much more subdued. But even as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a great difference that you feel and a difficulty to connect because of the faith that they have versus the faith that we have. Yet what's amazing to me is how many Christians across our country <clears throat> bear more of a similarity to Hinduism in their beliefs than they do to true Christianity. Because tell me what the difference is between being dunked in the Ganges and being dunked in the baptistry for the forgiveness of your sins. Tell me what the difference is between a Hindu living a good life to escape reincarnation and a person that goes to a Christian church living a good life in order to escape hell. What's the practical difference? Well, if you look on just the outside, somebody objective would look at it and say, well, you know, they're getting dunked in water, they're getting dunked in water. They're living, trying to live a moral life, they're trying to live a moral life. It's just the same thing, but a different way, says the objective person who looks on the outside. And on the outside, what's, it's not so much what we do that makes Christianity different. Because every religion is going to tell you you need to good, do good things. But what makes Christianity so different is why we do what we do. All across America today, in many services, you could summarize the essential message of the sermon in two words. Be good. Be good. In fact, you know, if this were just a normal Sunday and we were just saying be good, I would just say be good and we could all go to Wyatt's a lot earlier. But today I want to talk to you about why to be good. It's so easy to, uh, to come away from a church service to say, well, what what did they talk about today? What was the theme today? Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> we're supposed to be good. Why? Because you go to hell if you don't? Because God won't like you if you don't? Because people are going to look down on you if you don't? Why be good? Is there a motivation beyond the fear of hell? Is there a motivation that's more lofty and honoring to God than simply because you have to? 
let that sink in for just a second. It seems almost like a contradiction, like a, a dichotomy of ideas, grace and standards. And yet it, grace is the context in which God's standards are to be taught. I can think of no better passage to, uh, that illustrates this, that teaches this in the Bible than Titus chapter 2. So turn there, would you? If you brought a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 2. And incidentally, if you did not bring a Bible, don't have a Bible, then uh, we've got some in the lobby that you can uh, borrow, buy, or just have, depending on what you need. Uh, because you, we want you to have a copy of the Scriptures for yourself to uh, read on your own during the week. And also to bring with you on Sundays and jot notes down as we go through a particular text. And in Titus chapter 2, many times in our circles when we hear Titus 2, you think about women. As we talked about what our ladies and Sam are doing over in Russia right now. Or as what our women's ministry is going to start up here in a few weeks. Uh, another series of studies on Titus 2 as it relates to women, but that's the first part of the chapter. The last part of the chapter gives the why. Titus 2 and Titus 1 focus on good deeds. In fact, we had the privilege a number of years ago to do a series on this entire book, and it was great. I enjoyed it as one of my most favorite series because the whole book centers around this theme of grace and God's standards, or grace and doing good deeds. And good deeds always couched within the, the context of grace. And if we were to read chapter 1, you'd see the good deeds that leaders are to do. If we were to read the first part of chapter 2, you'd see the good deeds that older men, old, younger men, older women, younger women, and employees are to do. But then starting in verse 11, now for the first time in the book, we're told why we are to live up to God's standards. What's the motivation? Well, we're told. Verse 11 reads this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, to all people. The grace of God has appeared. And a key word in that verse is the word for. The very beginning, the word for. Because it is explaining everything you said before. Here's what leaders are to do. Here's what men, women, employees are to do. Why? for or because the grace of God has appeared. That's the reason. What is grace? You hear it all the time in church. Grace this, grace that. What's grace? Well, I looked grace up in the dictionary. And Webster's Dictionary defines it several ways. It calls it charm. And you've got a certain grace about you. Uh, an attractive quality. She is graced with such and so. Uh, and it a temporary exemption of payment, like a grace period. Uh, a prayer, you say grace. A title, your grace. But the 11th and final definition is a fantastic definition of grace relating to the scriptures. It says, in theology, it is the unmerited love and favor of God toward man. It's the divine influence acting on man to make him pure and morally strong. It's the condition of a person thus influenced. And I read that and thought, man, Daniel, why didn't you stick that at the top? It's a fantastic definition of grace that Webster's given us here, very biblical definition. 
and very well could have been drawn from this very passage in Titus 2 because the grace of God is defined as the reason, not only the reason that, uh, or it's defined as the unmerited favor that we've received, and it's also the motivation for doing the good things that we do. Grace is simply no more, no less than God's unmerited favor to you. You don't deserve his favor. I don't deserve his favor. That's grace when he gives his favor. The grace of God appeared, we're told. It's a neat verb. It, it means to shine. The grace of God appeared in the sense of shining. It's used of like a sunrise coming. Finally, it was dark, and the grace of God, boom, the rays come. And it appeared, of course, when the Lord Jesus Christ showed up on earth, leaving the glory of heaven, leaving the praise of the angels, and came down and lived a perfect life on earth, died an innocent death on the cross. And the one who knew no sin, Jesus, took all our sins on him and paid the penalty that we deserved when he died. And then he rose again on the third day to show that that penalty indeed had been paid, that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. And we're given the good news that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ may have forgiveness of sins because Christ died for their sins. Notice what this verse doesn't say. Verse 11 doesn't say, For the grace of God and dot 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 fill in the blank has appeared bringing salvation to all men. It doesn't say grace and make sure you pray. Grace and make sure you've been baptized. Grace and make sure you're given tons of money. There's no and to grace. You'll never find grace and in the scriptures as far as the means of salvation. It's not even grace and faith, but it's grace through faith. Grace alone is the sole means by which we can come into the presence of God. Amen, he says. But how does that happen? It happens through our faith. In other words, grace is a gift, but it's a gift you must receive, and you receive it through faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. So you could explain what he's teaching us here in Titus 2, the initial part of God's grace this way, that God offers his saving grace as a gift available to anyone who believes. To anyone. Notice, remember the text said, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. Potentially, anybody can have it. But it's a gift that must be received. There's a father and a son who had a bitter argument one time. Parted company, the son moved off as far as he could away to Madrid in Spain. A number of years went by and the father began to feel sorry for the, the conflict and wanted to make up to his son. And so didn't know how to get, knew he was in Madrid but didn't know how to get a hold of him and put an article in the paper and his son's name is Paco, and he, he told, the article in the paper had a simple line that said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. 
Paco is a very common name in Spain. And when this guy showed up to the square on Tuesday noon, there were 800 Pacos there waiting for their dad. The desire that we have for reconciliation is universal. We all desire it. Lewis Smedes has a book called Shame and Grace. And in it he writes, Guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt was more of a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. We all have the need that Paco felt for reconciliation. We all have the need that Lewis Smedes wrote of to be accepted unconditionally. And what's amazing is if you look at the stories, the parables that Jesus told in his life, you see this illustrated over and over again as he tells a story about a, a prodigal son who goes away and who freely is forgiven by his father. Not because of anything the son has done, but because of the love of the father. You've got debtors who are forgiven freely of their debt. You've got uh, a shepherd that will leave 99 of his sheep and go find the one who's wandered away. And one of my favorite parables is the one that, where this, this uh, foreman pays workers who have not worked hardly at all during the day, pays them the same amount, those who came at the end of the day, as those who started the day. And because those who started the day are angry that they worked the whole day and earned their wage, but those at the end were simply given it. Jesus, over and over through his stories, illustrates the grace that God is extending to us is favor that is not earned. It is unmerited favor. And we'll come to a greater understanding of Jesus' parables when we read through the Gospels when we realize that much of what he's talking about is not just some hypothetical story way back when over in Israel. That the one sheep that the shepherd left the 99 to go find was you. That the prodigal son that the father was looking for and who welcomed back was you. That the guy who was hired at the end of the day, not the guy who worked all day long and earned the wage, but the guy who was hired at the end of the day and given the payment is you. And it's me. What God has given us is simply by grace. It is not earned. One of my favorite books is by Philip Yancey, and it's called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's an outstanding book on grace. You should read it. And in it, he writes these words. He says, God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. In the bottom line realm of ungrace, some workers deserve more than others. In the realm of grace, the word deserve does not even apply. God has no obligation 
had no obligation to forgive you of your sin. Jesus had no obligation to die on the cross for your sin. His only obligation toward your sin was to judge you for it. And yet, instead of judging you for your sin, God became a man and judged himself. He took all the sin on himself and, in, and died for it in our place. Where God's love, God's grace, and God's justice were met and both were satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ. Grace, unmerited favor, no matter what you've done. You say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that God's grace, I can just, I can just do whatever I want now? W.C. Fields was in his dressing room one time reading the Bible. True story. One of his friends happened to walk in on him and see him reading, and Fields slammed the Bible shut real quick, and looked over at his friends, and he said, I'm just looking for loopholes. <laughs> and anybody that talks about the grace of God has got to deal with that apparent, the obvious loophole, the obvious problem of, well, wait a minute. If God's grace is really what you say it is, then... What's to keep me from just saying, accepting Jesus Christ and then living a flagrant life of sin? What's to keep you from doing that? The Apostle Paul asked that question as well, not in Titus, but in another book. And he asked, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? In other words, shall we sin because we can get away with it? Because grace just covers it? And his answer is no, because it'll kill you. Sin leads to death. Not hell, but physical death. There is nobody that can do this to God. You know, nobody. A man reaps what he sows. And that's tough. But you can't lose through your works what you did not gain through your works. Nobody gained salvation through works. It's grace. And how are you going to lose it? through your works. You can't. Our grace is not grace. You may remember hearing last week about the fatal crash of a Singapore airline jet in Taiwan. Terrible tragedy. Uh, 83 people killed, and they say that this happened. The officials that investigated this say that it happened because there were some people that did not follow the international safety standards. And when I read that, I thought, you know what? Standards are important. Or people die. You've got to follow standards. And so here's the great tension between grace and God's standards. Grace is the context in which we teach God's standards, but how does that work together? I mean, is it grace or is it standards? Well, the answer is yes. Standards are essential, or there are consequences. But there's got to be a more noble reason to obey God than fear of death. And there is. The Bible certainly offers it. It's a correct understanding of grace that it's unconditional, but it's a wrong application of grace to say, hey, I've got a free meal ticket now, I can just do whatever I want, and, uh, and it'll be okay. Well, yeah, you'll still go to heaven, but you may get there a little sooner than you planned. Grace is to have a totally opposite effect on us. It's not to make us want to go sin. Instead, 
it's intended to have another effect. Look at verse 12. Grace of God's appear brings salvation to all men. Verse 12, what does the grace of God do? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace here in verse 12 is almost personified as a person who teaches, who instructs us. There's a, the, it's interesting, the word here for instruct or instructing is from the Greek word paiduo. We get the word pediatrics or pedagogy from it. It means a, a child or instructing a child. And it's a beautiful picture here because it's saying that grace teaches us like kids. Like you teach a child, and it is a process of learning, of grace motivating you through gratitude to learn how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I saw a great uh, cartoon a couple weeks ago. Guys playing basketball, and it's do or die basketball. If you don't make it, you drop through a trap door. What I love about this is it cost the guy two bucks to do it. This cartoon's got a lot of real good, bad theology in it. Because we take this kind of a mindset into our relationship with the Lord. We'll stand, we feel, on a trap door, and if we don't toe the line, God drops us. You know, we've got no problem, a lot of times, believing that the grace of God is good for us in eternity. No problem. I die, I go to heaven because of the grace of God. But what does the grace of God have to do with you in your daily life? Does it really make any difference? I mean, really make any difference? Or is it just a nice concept that you sort of hear about and you think, well, you know, that's nice. Maybe someday it'll happen to me. It's easier to grasp grace for eternity, but how about grace for today? How can the grace of God impact your life today? not just when you die. We take into our relationship with God the great temporary love we feel, or we feel that He has for us. It's very conditioned on whether we make the shot or not. Is that really God's grace? One Sunday I had off and I went to a Mormon church just to see what it was like. Never been there, thought I'd check it out. And it was interesting. I expected to see a lot of weird things uh, because I'd never been there. You know, you hear Mormons, cults, everything, and thought, well, you know, I'll go check it out. But you know, the weirdest thing I discovered when I was there is how similar they look to us. Not really to us. I mean, we don't look like a church, church here. But I grew up in a very traditional kind of church, and a man was like walking into my traditional church. Everything looked the same. The greeters, hi, good morning, how are you doing? Everything was the same until they started the sermon. And I listened to a sermon that lasted about an hour long, and I can summarize it in five words. Well, how about six words? Give money or go to hell. Basically, that was it. Now, I didn't say it that crassly, but I just saved us some time. 
That was the bottom line. They kind of worked their way to it, but that was the bottom line. Give money or go to hell. And I remember sitting there and hearing this and uh, thinking, you know, isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? I mean, it's logical. Why, if that's what's being taught, people give like it's going out of style and, and the Mormons have got multi-gazillion dollar facilities? Because, hey, man, it depends on money. You bet. Here you go. I'll buy my salvation. But if it depends on grace, Jesus Christ paid it all. All you got to do is believe in what Jesus Christ did. Oh, good. Well, don't need to give a dime. And unfortunately, that's where we swing in the camps that preach grace. Because human nature tends to want to swing toward not doing a thing. Garrison Keillor had a great quote. He said, I'm not sure if I'm in favor of repentance. Sinners are the ones who get the work done. A strong sense of personal guilt is what makes people willing to serve. <laughs> now, Keeler's got his tongue firmly in cheek, but there's a great element of truth there. It is a great, guilt is a great motivator. You know, I could stand up here and make you feel so guilty, ooh, and I can make me feel guilty too. And we'd all leave feeling worse than when we came. My goal is not to make you feel good, but I don't think that the Lord would have us come in here and leave feeling like trash. Because Christ never did that to anybody that was truly seeking Him. The only persons that ever left out of the presence of Christ and felt bad were those who were hypocrites and who had no real desire to get to know Him. In fact, they killed him. At our church, we value grace as the context in which God's standards are to be taught. Yes, God has standards. Yes, we should live up to them. But we live up to them because of God's grace, not in order to get God's grace. We live up to them because of what he's done. We don't try to get something from him through what we do. The beautiful but polar opposite uh, teaching. And not only does God offer His saving grace to anyone who believes, but He offers His saving grace as the sole motivation for godly living. Gratitude. Why should we be good? Gratitude. Because of what Christ has done for us. One of my favorite films of a novel is uh, Les Miserables with uh, Liam Neeson. Adapt adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel. It's wonder wonderfully done. And, uh, of course, the story is about Jean Valjean, the, uh, the convict who is uh, living, released during pre-revolutionary France. And he's wandering around the streets. Nobody will let him in because he's a convict, an ex-convict. And he can't find any help from anybody until he comes upon this kindly old bishop who takes him in, gives him a meal, and uh, begins to talk to him about God and justice and things like this. Well, I'd like for you to look at a, uh, a clip from this film. And in it, I'd like you to picture yourself in it. Don't just look at it objectively, but look at it personally and let it illustrate you. 
Because if you think about it, there's a great similarity between you and the Lord Jesus Christ and the scene in which we're about to see with Liam Neeson, his character Jean Valjean, and this bishop. So picture yourself as Valjean, Liam Neeson, and picture the Lord Jesus as this bishop. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry! Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam, you know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. The bishop had the right to have Valjean imprisoned. Justice demanded it. But when the bishop went against every human instinct for revenge, it transformed Valjean. When he was shown grace, when he had not even yet repented, it totally tore down all defenses. And he dedicated his life from that point on to helping others and to becoming a, a godly man. Kathy and I watched part of this movie again last night, and one scene that really struck me afresh was a little further on in the movie where uh, Valjean has become an upstanding citizen. He's a mayor of a city. And one of his subordinates comes in and confesses that he has slandered him and uh, that he should be punished. And Valjean says, no, I'm not going to punish you. I forgive you. And this guy couldn't handle that. He said, no, I've done this. You must punish me. And so Valjean looks at him and says, okay, here are my orders. I order you to forgive yourself. Now, I'm not getting my theology from Victor Hugo. But I think it's an outstanding illustration of what we learn here in Titus 2. Because in our lives, we can 
we can realize, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins. But I am not going to forgive myself. And we will carry with us guilt and shame from some sin that we did way back when or maybe some sin we did yesterday. And the fact that we have accepted Christ makes our guilt in our heart all the worse. And I think that what, like Valjean said to his subordinate, would be exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ would say to us. I have forgiven you. Here are my orders. You forgive yourself. The whole reason Christ died was not just so that we may have eternal life in heaven, but that we may begin having eternal life now. And that the grace that he offers, the benefit, benefit of which we experience when we die, we can also benefit every single day by realizing that you don't have to carry that guilt. It is completely unnecessary. God's saving grace instructs us, like children, like pedagogy, in two ways. First, the text told us negatively. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. In other words, you're going to have them. You're normal if you have them. But deny them, motivated by gratitude because of what God has done for you. That's negatively. Positively, also, we're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That God's grace not only teaches us to say no to this, but it teaches us to say yes to this. It motivates us to do what's right. I remember when I first got my driver's license, I uh, had a car date. Remember those? Car date. One of my first car dates. And uh, went over, picked the girl up. Don't even remember who it was. Probably wasn't a big deal, but I went and picked her up. My dad had given me the Cadillac. My dad had given me the American Express Platinum whatever big card. And he says, have a great time. And I can remember thinking, wow, I got the card, I got the CAD, I got everything I need to have a great time. And for those fleeting seconds, you look down at the speedometer as you're driving and you think, you know, I wonder if that really means 120 miles per hour. <laughs> you know? I wonder what the credit limit on this card really is. I mean, a platinum, I've never seen one of that before. I could probably buy this car. But instead, it had a different motivation for me. That my father would entrust me with these precious gifts instead of tempting me to run off and abuse them, truly, it, it gave me the motivation to want to take care of it. I drove the speed limit. I did everything right with the Cadillac. I parked it 100 feet away from everything else. When we went and had dinner, I told my date to keep her meal under five bucks. <laughs> I didn't really, but... It's not my wife, probably for obvious reasons. <laughs> but the point is, was the freedom there to abuse these gifts? You bet. 
Would I still have been his father, uh, his son? You bet. That relationship would not have changed. Now, would there have been consequences? You bet. But their relationship still would have been there. It's the same with our Lord and the grace he offers us through salvation. Yes, he gives you grace. You can sin a thousand times a day and you're still going to go to heaven. Is that really the way you want to treat that gift? Or does that outstanding grace instead want to motivate you to live a life of good deeds that honors God's standards? You see, God can motivate from guilt. God could motivate from grace. God chose to motivate from grace by first giving and then said, Now you live your life for me. That we're to live this way in the present age implies that there's an age to come. Look at verse 13. We're to do this in the present age, but looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Don't miss that wonderful little tidbit. People say Jesus never claimed to be God or the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. Yes, it does. Look right there. The glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And the original language makes it even clearer textually that Jesus is God in these verses. What did, what did Jesus do for us? Verse 14, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What was the purpose of his redeeming us or pardoning us from every lawless deed for good deeds? From something for something. From a life of evil for a life of good. And it's a beautiful picture here where it says uh, that he might redeem us. That word redeem means literally to ransom with money. It's, the, uh, it's a beautiful picture again in the film of where the bishop hands Valjean this silver and says, with this silver, I've ransomed your soul. You no longer belong to evil. I'm giving you back to God. And you've, you have promised to become a new man. The same thing the Lord Jesus Christ could easily say through the principles of Scripture, that with my blood on the cross, I ransomed your soul. And you no longer belong to evil. You promised to become a new man, inasmuch as is exactly what the Apostle Paul said when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole motivation for godly living is that Jesus died for our sins. Ephesians 2.10, look at the screen real quick we see that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then at the end of Titus 2, verse 15, a verse that's often left out, and yet it does so much to wrap up the entire argument of this paragraph. Paul writes, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. The word there for disregard means to think around. It means you can think of 10, 15 good reasons why this doesn't apply to you, but it applies to somebody else. 10 to 15 good reasons why this really, you know, it's nice, but 
doesn't really apply to my life. Let no one disregard you, the text says. That means the text applies to you. And it applies to me. Not you, plural, you, singular. You. How does God's grace apply in your life? A couple ways. First, in salvation, that is, forgiveness of your sins. And secondly, in your daily walk with Christ that you know there's nothing you can do to out the grace of God. He accepts you, warts and all, as His own. Lord, we each bow before You today with all the guilt that in the fictional story of Valjean, all the guilt that he carried, worthy to be condemned, worthy to be imprisoned, and yet we carry a guilt, Lord, we know, against a great, a much great higher authority, and that's you. And that our imprisonment that we deserve is an eternity apart from you. And yet we have seen through the text of Titus 2 today that your grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, the grace that is greater than all our sin. And so I pray for the one here today still clinging to the guilt of the past, refusing to let it go. They may put it at the foot of the cross and not only have their sins forgiven forever, but also to experience the joy of walking in your grace every day.